Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm on the board of Team DC. I've played and loved sports my entire life, and I've played with the DC Furies and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC and I'm a diehard sports fan. I play with many of the Team DC sports member leagues, including the DC GFFL, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, Cara Bowling, and recently the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. And I also do a little drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's July 6th, and you're listening to Episode 3 of Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For a discussion of all things queer, she chose the Netflix documentary, Disclosure. For our conversation of all things sports, we're talking about the return of baseball and some new rules for the 2020 season. And for the intersection between sports and queer, we will discuss the Trump administration's recent attacks on transgender athletes. After that, we're going to share our interview with Rogue Darts. And here we go. Before we get into our topics, we like to give you an update on Team DC. Our virtual Pride Week was a huge success. We shared lots of great content and raised money to support Team DC and our scholarship program. If you haven't had a chance to check out the content, it's still available in our Vimeo archive and you can access it at teamdc.org. COVID-19 still has the rest of our calendar on hold, so stay tuned for updates just as soon as we have them. As for us, check out our new episodes every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate us, give us five stars, review and subscribe to our podcast, and share us with a friend if you like what you hear. Each of the platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Podbean, give the option to subscribe, provide a comment, and also rate and review us. So do us a favor and smash those buttons to help our podcast up the charts. And now here's Laura with our first topic in this week's Under the Bleachers. All right, so for my topic in the world of all things queer this week, uh, I want to talk about the documentary Disclosure. Disclosure is a film by director Sam Fader. It was executive produced by the fabulous Laverne Cox, who is a transgender actress best known for her Emmy award-winning portrayal of Sophia Bursette on Orange is the New Black. Disclosure is an unprecedented look at transgender depictions in film and television. Leading trans thinkers and creatives, including Laverne Cox, Lily Wachowski, Yance Ford, MJ Rodriguez, Jamie Clayton, and Chaz Bono, are featured in the film and share their reactions and resistance to some of Hollywood's most well-known depictions of transgender people. In a director's statement about Disclosure, Fader emphasized the importance of using only trans people as featured subjects in the documentary. He said, quote, we want audiences to enjoy the nostalgia of archival clips while sitting with complicated feelings. We do not want to tell anyone how or what to think. Rather, ask how can we be critically engaged with problematic material, knowing that change happens over time, is not linear, and often people don't know what they don't know. Disclosure premiered on Netflix June 19th. It's available now, and I highly recommend you head over to Netflix and check it out. So, Gabe, did you get a a chance to check out Disclosure yet? I did, and I did have some of those mixed feelings where it was interesting to watch, but it was was, was kind of hard to watch at some points, and some points I was like, you know, thinking to myself, um, 
you know, is this really offensive? Is it not? And then, um, but when I was going into doing some research, I saw, you know, it's, it's going through the lens of someone who's actually transgender. And it's kind of hard to put yourself in that perspective if you're not transgender. So it was like, yeah, you know, this, this could, this is offensive. Some of the, some of the uh, examples that they were giving and some of the clips that they were showing from back in the day. Yeah. So like, just to clarify what you're saying, you're not saying that the way the documentary was done was offensive, but. Oh, no, 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 not at all. Some of the clips that um, were featured in the documentary, you had your initial reaction to them was whether that clip should be considered offensive or not. Yes, some of them, but the others, I was like, wow, this actually was shown on TV, (laughs) you know, in the 60s, 70s. And even, you know, when we're the, I forgot, um, I remember one of the guys who was a writer, he was, he premiered on Survivor. I think his name was Zeke. Oh, right. Yeah. Who I don't watch Survivor, so I did not recognize that. And that was a big controversy too, because he was outed as transgender on Survivor. So that was kind of- A lot of the things that you're saying are kind of what I really enjoyed about this documentary. One, I really liked how Sam Fader used a good mixture of both transgender actors and actresses. Mm -hmm. So they're talking about, you know, from the perspective of as a person in this industry, And then also people who were um, researchers and writers and people who sort of studied this from a more kind of educational, for lack of a better word, perspective. And then also there were transgender activists um, who probably, you know, see it through a lens that is neither from the perspective of a person who works in Hollywood or a person who's looking at this from a more educational standpoint. They're just Mm -hmm. experiencing this. Um, so I really liked that mixture of perspectives. And I also particularly liked the fact that all of the perspectives were of people who were transgender people. So they were able to give you um, their own first person perspective of what it felt like for a transgender person to see these depictions. So at the end of the day, while we could, we as viewers certainly could have complicated feelings over whether we would have realized what was right or wrong yeah. with the depictions, we really aren't, weren't left in a position to disagree with or judge the positions that were expressed on the documentary because these are transgender people telling you their first person perspective of how exactly right how they felt and how they feel when they see these depictions i mean exactly but on the but to add a little nuance to that they didn't always agree right so it wasn't as if this documentary showed that every transgender person has the same first person reaction to these it's different for everyone yeah right like it particularly stood out to me when they were discussing boys don't cry Uh that there were some of the people that discussed their reaction to boys don't cry talked about how it was very triggering for them and very difficult for them to watch. And they particularly did not like that portrayal because they saw it as, you know, I think sort of exploiting just only looking at one side of a trans story. And it was, you know, the most um, problematic sort of side or the most um, hurtful side. Whereas other people in the documentary discussing how they felt watching Boys Don't Cry seemed to um, find that portrayal to be very empowering because it was such a um, such a strong 
a, such a well-made movie, such a well-acted movie about such an important story in, you know, transgender reality. So, you know, we're left as viewers to say, I can't be critical of somebody else's first person reality, but it's good exactly. to know that not everyone has the, you know, we're not, we're not left to assume that every transgender person views everything the same way. Yeah. And it was, I, I really liked where they started with almost the beginning of film and Hollywood, you know, industry and all that. And then kept going on to, you know, even present day. Uh, but even when they were talking about, and I remember these like from the, from the nineties and even early two thousands, like those trash TV, you know, the Maury Povich show and stuff like that. And um, going back, but um, what's his face? Zeke Smith. So he was saying that his favorite movie was Ace Ventura. Yeah. Growing up. And he's like, yeah, I loved it. And then, you know, I loved it as a kid. But when I saw it as an adult and, you know, the, the whole punchline is like, you know, the character is trans and look, you know, they outed her and everyone starts throwing up and vomiting. I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, yeah that was a, actually, I think one of a, like a particularly moving part of the documentary because it was like you were watching him as he was telling this story, like you were watching the evolution of his reaction, right? Yeah. Where, you know, he talked about how he really loved this film growing up. And then when he watched it in college, during a time where he was either beginning tra his transition or at a point in time where it was um, something that was particularly on his mind and he was having a lot of emotions about it, um, how he watched it because he expected it to give him a level of comfort because he was revisiting like a movie he loved and instead um yeah. he saw this yeah and then they followed that up with just example after example after example of other movies and television shows that use the exact same storytelling device which is the vomit as the reaction you know the vomiting when you find out that like, someone is transgender yeah. yeah oh it's you know it's disgusting i was like whoa oh, and then, it was, you know, that was hard to watch right that was that was really hard to yeah yeah another um, thing that really got me with the documentary was you know there were certain um shows that i remember watching them at the time and thinking and not thinking that they were problematic at all and in fact so a perfect example is the original l word uh-huh and i remember watching the original l word and i was an adult at the time you know i was in my 20s or whatever and the fact that they had a trans character on the l word felt like a big deal to me that it felt like it was like sort of wow people are acknowledging you know this storyline and i i thought it was such a good thing and then now here we are whatever it is 15 years later and see looking back on what that depiction really looks like and you're kind of like oh god that was terrible i mean the character max on the l word they showed him when he started taking testosterone they turned him into the most unlikable character and they turned him into a monster <laughs> frankly i mean once he started taking testosterone he became super aggressive he was always like starting fights and like hitting things throwing things he start he became the most jealous and um just like controlling partner to his partner jenny and you know so looking back on it now you're just like oh my god but it, it, it's very interesting because you see you realize you know the evolution of your own thinking but you also i think have to stop and look back and say wait a minute 
I think the, L, the original L word still should get a little bit of credit for being ahead of its time. It just turns out that like we, they just weren't there yet to do it right. <laughs> yeah, it was a little. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me sometimes. Do, do, do you think a show like The L Word then who was, the, was one of the only programs telling a transgender story at all should get some credit for being ahead of the curve or for trying to do this? Trying to bring up the topic. Even though, um, frankly, now that we look at it, we know they did a shitty job. Like, yeah. did we give them credit for that? Or did they cause more problems than, than anything than else? what they meant. Yeah, well, you know, how are they going? Well, when they were talking about the Ryan Murphy stuff and how his programs, uh, you know, when he was nip-tuck and then going now to doing Pose and how, you yeah. know, his ideas have shifted and changed. Um, yeah, no, that, and that's a great angle. And the L word is another example of that because now there's a reboot of the L word and a lot of the same people are involved and they are telling trans stories and they're doing a much better job of it. So to the one, you know, you also get to focus on the evolution and the fact that people can do a better job. People can learn, people can grow. And clearly we need to give credit to people who are learning and growing. Um, I still, I still think I give credit to the original um, depictions for just trying to get a story out there and recognizing that this story was being ignored and they wanted to tell it in a way. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's tough to reconcile because you know that those stories really impacted people negatively. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where you really don't think anything of it, but you're not going through that. So you don't know how it's going to affect other people. Right. I, you know, it's, it, I, 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 again, what I really, really, I think most appreciate about this documentary is that at some point, each of the subjects talked about from their own personal perspective, how watching one or more of these clips made them feel at the time. And that's a really eye-opening um, it's a really, it's just eye-opening. So for, if you're going to watch a documentary, that's, you know, one of the key takeaways, what you should walk away and understand is a little bit more empathy, right? For the subject mm -hmm. of the documentary, understand a little bit more about what, what it would be like to um, be in the shoes of the subject of the documentary. And I think this documentary in particular did a phenomenal job of that. So I'm wondering too, because uh, I know they started kind of going on the positive notes of where the, the roles for transgender actors and actresses are going from, you know, murder victim number four and on CSI and, you know, um, right. drug dealer, prostitute number three in these shows to actually getting uh, movies and TV shows and, you know, and scripts with these characters in mind. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, ultimately, if the question is, is this a good documentary? I think hands down the answer is yes. I mean, I think they did an amazing job. And it starts a conversation. And if you know, if you have a couple friends or people that are watching it, you can talk about it. And it's starting the conversation of, you know, looking back. And I was even questioning some of the stuff that the shows that I saw and some of the things I was like, wow, that's really offensive. <laughs> if you have not recognized um, these stereotypical um, portrayals of transgender people in film and TV, then watch this documentary. It will open your eyes and then go back and watch some of the film and TV. And I promise you, it's going to jump out at you. Yeah. It's going to actually make you think about certain things and, you know, is what I'm watching, 
entertainment? Is it funny? Is it, or is it going to be offensive to someone, you know, just having those conversations and those in, internal looks of, yeah, kinda, well, okay, just, I, you know, I think it's, is this entertaining, but then also should this be entertaining? Should this be, you know, and not right? too, you know, if I think it's funny, but it's going to be hurting someone or causing them harm right. emotionally, you know, is that right? Right. What is I, the value? What is the value of this depiction? Um, if there are children watching it across the country who, who are looking every day trying to see themselves portrayed on television and screen. And when they see um, someone who is transgender, it's in this light. And what is that going to mean for them as they grow up and try to um, understand themselves better. It's, you know, it's tough. Uh, I think Laverne Cox quoted in the documentary, a statistic, which I think is from a study that I think it was GLAD did, where they found that 80% of Americans reported that they did not know a transgender person, mm -hmm. which I'm skeptical because <laughs> I think a lot of those people probably do know transgender people. They just don't know that those people are transgender and nor do they need to. But the yeah. fact that 80% of Americans believe that they don't know a transgender person means that a lot of kids growing up who are trans don't know anyone like themselves, don't know a single person like themselves, can't look to their parents or their parents' friends or their teachers to see a reflection of that. They have to look to television they have to look to movies. So mm -hmm. knowing that we need to be as a society more responsible about what we're put, how we're portraying this because we have a responsibility to those kids, frankly. I mean, it's kind of the whole representation thing, but hopefully, you know, there are going to be more uh, transgender individuals who become writers, become filmmakers, directors, and get into these positions where they can have a chance to tell their stories. All right. So two thumbs up, Gabe. Two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Yeah, I agree. Everybody, if you haven't checked out Disclosure yet, it is streaming on Netflix. And uh, Gabe and I recommend you go check it out. Yes. Okay, and for my sports topic, sports are coming back. <laughs> so that in and of itself is a topic. Um, the NBA has announced that it will return with a 21-team season beginning July 31st with games being played at Walt Disney World in Florida. The WNBA has begun training camps and expect to announce a plan to return to play in Florida very soon. The NHL expects training camps to open in July with return to play to follow, and the NFL and NCAA football so far intend to start in September and August, respectively, business as usual. On June 24th, Major League Baseball announced the long-awaited return of baseball. Players reported to a spring training of sorts uh, July 1st, and according to the latest information on the MLB website, the regular season is anticipated to begin on July 23rd and 24th. MLB has submitted a proposed 60-game schedule to the Players Association for review. It's not yet been finalized, but the plan is to limit travel distances. Teams would play a majority of their games against their division opponents. Um, it would be 40 games, 10 against each opponent in their division. And the rest would be against their geographic counterpart in the other league. So the AL East would play the NL East, the AL Central, the NL Central, and the AL West, the NL West. 
There has been some indication that MLB intends to allow local governments to decide whether fans will be allowed to attend baseball games. And the governor of Texas seems to want to allow fans to attend. But at least for the start of the season, no fans are planned to be in attendance. It's not going to be the baseball season that we're used to, but it will be a baseball season. And for that, we are grateful. Um, That said, we should talk about a few of the new rules that will be in place for the new season. There are a bunch of new rules going to be in place, but there are three that are particularly annoying to me, so that's what we're going to talk about today. All right, so the first rule I want to talk about is the universal designated hitter. Most people are aware the American League adopted the designated hitter rule back in 1973, and pitchers do not hit in the American League, but pitchers have continued to hit in all games played at National League ballparks. That will not be the case in 2020, as both leagues will be using the universal DH. So I, as I've already said, I hate this rule. So (laughs) (laughs) what do you think, Gabe? Do you have any feelings one way or the other about universal designated hitter? Um, So I know I was going through a little history of it. People are basically saying, you know, the teams hire the pitcher for the pitching, not for the hitting. But it's kind of hard because I'm going to be like, well. Well, when you say people say that, you mean American League baseball fans. Baseball fans, yeah. Right. You know, they're they're just like, oh, yeah, we we hire these people for the one set skill. And if, you know, uh, the reason it came about is because they had so many crappy hitters, you know, pitchers that couldn't hit a ball. But that's part of playing the sport. So it's kind of hard. I mean... Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I've always been a fan. I'm a Mets fan, right, for my whole life. So I am an NL League fan, so obviously I'm biased um, <laughs> in that direction. And so I can't – but this whole argument that we hire them to pitch is such bullshit. Then, like, yeah. why don't I hire my fucking amazing center fielder to play center field, but if he sucks at hitting, I can let somebody else hit for him? Yeah, right? like, like, why is the pitcher so special? What's well, like that one, you know, that one position? Why? Yeah, and also like, no, you don't hire them to pitch. You hire them to play baseball. You are exactly. a baseball team, right? And playing baseball, last I last I heard, involved hitting a baseball. So it's uh, kind of important for the sport. Yeah, you know, yeah. So I I do. I've heard all the arguments on the other side, and at the end of the day, I think they're crap. And I think. You don't even have to get into that much nuance. I think the answer is simple. If you're going to play a game, you play the whole game. You don't get treated special. But did um, they say exactly why? Like, I know some of these other rules, it's because they want to speed up the game. Yeah, they don't so, want people exposed, but that's, that's Look, I think weird. at the end of the day, the, these are all, they all come down to the fact that um, the commercialization of sports is what it is, right? So sports is now all about how to make the most money. And people across the board, all major sports, have decided that viewers prefer offense to defense. That's just like the universal rule. If you talk to people who work in the business of sports, they believe that everybody prefers offense to be defense. So fans are going to come to more games, pay, buy more tickets, you know, become a bigger fan if there's more home runs being hit. And the best way to do that is to take the guy out of the lineup who's least likely to hit the ball right yeah yeah and to me that's a that is a shitty assumption because I think there are a lot of baseball fans who love the purity of baseball and would rather sit through a pitcher's duel frankly and watch a pitcher battle every batter in any event um I give two thumbs down to the universal designated hitter 
The second um, rule change that I hate is the three batter minimum rule. This rule change was instituted in the past off season. So this was planned by Major League Baseball before um, COVID happened, but they have now announced that it's going to remain in place. The rule requires that when a pitcher comes into the game, the pitcher must face at least three batters or pitch to the end of a half inning. I hate this rule. (laughs) Like for a lot of the same reasons that I hate the designated hitter rule, which is I think that at the end of the day, defense should be, you know, considered as important as offense, right? Like, and this rule basically says, like, it's more important to speed up the game and have more offense than it is to allow the team to put their best defense on the field and make all the decisions they want to make to try their hardest to get the most outs, which to me is bullshit. But do you have any thoughts on the uh, three batter minimum rule? Yeah, to me, it's kind of like you're trying to alter the game to. I guess make it faster, but also more appealing to some people. You want you're you're artificially trying to make things happen, right? And so, it's like you're taking away from the game. You know? Who are you trying to please? The people who want the game to go faster. It's like if you want the game to go faster, maybe you don't like baseball all that much. So exactly. why are you the audience that we're trying to please so much? Right? And you kind of, I mean, baseball fans, you kind of know that a game is going to last a long time or you know might be short does you don't you never know depends on who's pitching who's going on it's part of like that baseball right the fact that it doesn't have a clock it's part of the beauty of the game exactly and you see some fans who are like oh this is uh why does this game take so long you know i'm watching this on tv i'm gonna catch a few innings go back and forth but no it's the whole beauty of the game and just yeah i would say this i okay i'm gonna be honest i don't think this is going to make a huge difference right like from what i can tell and i am no um i'm no like expert in baseball stats or anything like that but my sort of gut feeling about how baseball has been going over the last 15 years that i've been you know or whatever of watching baseball um you don't see the specialty left-handed pitcher that much anymore. Like they used to talk about it more. I feel like Uh years ago, there used to be these guys who they were basically left-handed pitchers who threw really sick curveballs, And so left-handed batters could not hit them to save their life. Right. (laughs) So if a left-handed batter was coming up to play and you really needed to get an out, and you were in the part of the game where you were already using relief pitchers, you might bring in this specialty guy. And so a lot of teams would like try to get one of these specialty guys in their bullpen to have for these rare circumstances. I don't really think that a lot of teams do that anymore. I think that teams now are way more focused on having really strong all around bullpens. And so, so I don't think there are that many of these guys left in the game. I don't think that you see it happening as much anyway, but that's not the point to me. The point is why are we changing baseball to please some people who I don't think really like baseball that much? (laughs) It just drives me freaking crazy. So I am also giving two thumbs down to the three batter minimum. And it sounds like you have no uh, argument on the other side. We are both coming down on the side of leave well enough alone. Baseball is beautiful. Just the way it is. Finally, the third and what I think is probably the most universally controversial rule change so i think everybody probably hates this not just me but for the 2020 season during the regular season if a go- if a game goes into extra innings 
for every half inning after the ninth, the team at bat is going to start the inning with a runner on second base. So the, yeah, this. <laughs> so the batter who made the last out the last time his team was at bat is going to be put on second. The, uh, the team can choose to replace him with a pinch runner if they want, but then that means that the other guy cannot come back into the game. Um, but yeah, so if we go into extra innings, which by the way, doesn't happen that often, but okay. But if we go into extra innings, now all of a sudden there's going to be a runner on second. This is by far the stupidest thing I've heard. In the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you have any opinion on this at all, but like, when it, it, it's, it's one like, of those like you're clearly trying to speed up the game and you're truly trying to end this early but it no it is mind-blowing to me because like a game that goes into extra innings you're like oh a, this is like a really close game this has got to be a hard-fought battle everything's on the line it's anyway so these are these games are like high tension high excitement and then you're just gonna throw a guy on second base like what this I, I it's like the equivalent of um how in football when they made it like if you, if you score a field goal on your first possession in overtime like the game is over like all of a sudden you don't have to try to score a touchdown anymore you just have to gain like 40 yards and you win the game what kind I just of bullshit go, yeah is that? yeah this is this is a horrible idea i don't know what gabe do you have any thought on this i'm which is kind of annoying because, again, it doesn't really happen that often. But I think the game gets really interesting and super exciting when you get into the extra innings. Thank Why you. Why are you trying to take that away and end it? Yeah, uh, it's like all of a sudden the game is like really on the line. It couldn't be more tense, more exciting. It's a it, uh, I'm trying to remember because I was there. I was at the stadium. It was a Naps game where it went on – couple extra hours it was one of the longest baseball games i've ever been to but everyone in the stands was just into the game it was super quiet just trying to see what was going to happen and what was going to go on because it was it was super yeah. exciting listen i've been to baseball games i have one very particular terrible memory of being at shea stadium for a fireworks night <laughs> it was like fourth of july like around fourth of july and it was a fire fireworks night and the mets were playing the braves and the Braves were winning. The, there were so many home runs in that game. It was just home run after home run after home run. But the Mets were losing like 18 to nothing or 18 to one or some ridiculous thing. The Mets ran out of pitchers. They had to pull somebody off third base to pitch. I mean, it was horrible, right? And the only reason I stayed to the end of that game is because it was fireworks night. And I think the Gucci brothers were doing fireworks and I wanted to see them. <laughs> but like... According to MLB, everybody wants to see home runs, right? Well, guess what? I would have left that game in a heartbeat with all oh, those yeah, home runs, right? But then I've been to Shea Stadium, I've been to City Field, and I've sat there into the 15th inning yeah, just waiting to see who's going to cross the plate for that final run. And I would much – I would never leave a game that was like that, that was – down coming down to the wire in the 14th 15th 16th inning i would stay to the bitter end you'd have to kick me out right so it, it, it's ridiculous to me this idea that like once a game goes into into extra innings that's when we should basically give it away to the other team i'm wondering too if it's i don't know it's all these conspiracy theories or things that i'm just thinking about is it like tv rights is it stuff like that or you know is baseball too long for tv 
Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons I think that MLB wants to speed up games. I mean, making money. I think a lot of it has to do with TV coverage. You know, it it absolutely, I think is true that they think that they're going to please fans by moving games along. But the reality is like once the fan bought the ticket to go to the game, it doesn't matter how long the game is. They already bought the ticket, right? They're there. So, you know, give me, that's not the thing. Right. But they, there is this general mentality that speeding up baseball will make more people watch more baseball as a general rule. But then a lot of it comes down to the fact that, you know, Fox doesn't want to give you an unlimited window of time to play a Sunday afternoon baseball game because they want to know that it's going to end in time for the Simpsons to come on. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this is garbage. Um, I think MLB is trying to ruin uh, the best sport that there is. And uh, I, give this, <laughs> I give all of MLB two thumbs down. <laughs> All right, so that's probably a lot more about baseball rules than most people <laughs> listening ever wanted to hear. But so let's move on to our third and final topic. My topic at the intersection of sports and queer this week is a very uplifting discussion about the Trump administration's recent attack on transgender athletes. So Idaho recently passed a law called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. Not surprisingly, the law is not about fairness at all. Rather, it bars transgender females from competing on girls' and women's teams at public schools and state colleges and universities. Two students represented by the ACLU and others have filed a federal lawsuit challenging the law, saying that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution and that enforcement of the law could involve subjecting students to invasive genital examinations. In response to the lawsuit, the Department of Justice on June 19th filed a statement of interest in support of the Idaho law. I think it's important to point out that the United States government is not a party to this lawsuit and did not need to insert itself into the lawsuit at all. But federal law does permit the DOJ to, quote, attend to the interests of the United States in a suit pending in a court of the United States. So basically, the DOJ argues that because this lawsuit is based on the Constitution and also relates to principles of Title IX, they have the right um, to insert themselves. So in other words, it is perfectly legal for the DOJ to do what they did. Whether that makes it right is a whole different story. Um, In a press release, Attorney General Bill Barr stated that the DOJ's position is that, quote, allowing biological males to compete in all female sports is fundamentally unfair to female athletes. Bill Barr went on to say, quote, single-sex athletics is rooted in the reality of biological differences between the sexes and should stay rooted in objective biological fact. This, of course, is just the latest in a long line of attacks on the rights and dignity of transgender people by the Trump administration, so we're really not surprised at all. But it's kind of hard to decide where even to begin discussing everything that is wrong with this move. So, Gabe, do you want to take the first shot at why this move by the DOJ is so wrong? (laughs) Uh, On many levels, I'm just... It, it, it's interesting, you know, every day what this administration is doing and some of the things that don't make the headlines don't make the news, but it's really affecting, you know, the LGBT community and especially, you know, transgender individuals. It's also interesting, uh, in, yeah, interesting too, that uh, some of these, the, the lawsuit is specifically 
uh, a trans individual that is transitioning from male to female. Uh, the lawsuits focusing mainly on that. They they really don't really touch male to male athletes, which is why you just one you're discriminating transgender athletes, but also you're going into another subsection of like wh- why you know what are you trying to get at? Well, I, I mean, look, let's let's just be honest about what the small mind of Bill Barr can comprehend. Right? <laughs> so he, you know, what he's really talking about is he's saying I don't want a dude dressed like a lady coming into my daughter's soccer team, right? Because he does not acknowledge or accept the fact that a transgender woman is a woman. I mean, his, the quote that I read from him is so blatant, right? He, what did he say? He said a biological male. He's not an, he will not acknowledge that a transgender woman is a woman. Is a woman. Right. Now, when you look at it in the other direction, he it does not as easy for him because he can't paint the scary picture of, you know, a woman dressing as a man and infiltrating the football locker room. That just isn't as scary to people. He can't use that to evoke fear in some housewife in Idaho the way that he can the other way around. So, I yeah. mean, it's completely manipulative. The fact that... Um, the fact that this law that Idaho passed is called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act is in and of itself disgusting, <laughs> right? And it's like, whatever you, I can only imagine. I, I, I actually, I didn't research it, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if not all, the vast majority of lawmakers at the Idaho State House are white cis males. And the idea that they suddenly care about fairness in women's sports is ridiculous yeah why now and you know what's what's really going on yeah it's almost like this is the new bathroom bill oh it Uh, absolutely is right and that's 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 the thing that's been amazing to me for the last three years is just how completely obsessed donald trump and the people he surrounds himself with are with the existence of transgender people it's like somebody told donald trump or bill barr three years ago that transgender people were real and their minds exploded (laughs) and now they're running all over the place trying to legislate where a transgender person can and cannot go and what they can and cannot do never mind the fact that transgender people have been living their lives just fine going to the bathroom and public spaces playing sports forever (laughs) we did not need right the laws to explode but they have and the trump administration reacts exactly the way that we expect them to every single time stop using women and your supposed desire to protect women's rights as your smokescreen to justify bad behavior and justify discriminating against transgender people yeah promise you that women athletes are fine (laughs) we're handling ourselves we're out here taking care of our business and we don't need a bunch of white cis men to protect us from transgender women by the way i mean if you want to protect us uh maybe make it so that when a guy rapes a woman he actually goes to prison for it yeah even some of the language they're using like this says uh allowing transgender athletes on girls and women's teams would negate nearly 50 years of progress women have made since the landmark 1972 title nine federal legislation. I'm like, no, yeah, no, it wouldn't. No, it doesn't. No, it wouldn't. It absolutely wouldn't. Also stop tying yourself up in knots trying to come like to suddenly care about protecting women in sports. 
right? Like these same people who are now championing the need to protect women in sports so from transgender women are the same people who oppose Title IX in the first place. In the first, yeah, now, and now they're trying it. to use it for their benefit. Yeah, just, uh, we, we are not fooled. I see you, <laughs> you know, just, you need to stop. <laughs> All of this needs to stop, so... So hopefully things will be a little bit brighter in November. Hopefully people get out there and vote and actually take a look at their local issues and what's going on. You know, we all live in D.C. or some people live in the area. Go back and look at what's going on in your state houses back home. You might have some friends that still live. Uh, you know, I, like I still have friends that live in Texas and I will let them know, hey, this is what's going on in the state house. This is what the governor said. You all still have some influence. Um, and start these conversations and keep them going. That way, you know, things don't fly under the radar and we don't get stuck in our little silos. That's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of things queer, things sports, and the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to be taking a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be sharing our interview with Rogue Darts. And we're here with Michael Hahn from Rogue Darts. Michael, would you like to say hi? Hey, how's it going? Doing well. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Rogue Darts? Perfect, yeah. So so Rogue Darts is uh, one of the intramural leagues in uh, Team DC. Uh, we play uh, two different kinds of seasons throughout the year. So we have a uh, winter and a summer season uh, that's on Thursday nights and uh, you know, uh, has probably our bigger season. And then we have uh, Tuesday night flights, uh, which runs in the fall and the spring. Uh, where it's a little bit smaller, but more intense competition. So, you know, I mean, it, as intense as darts can get, but uh, it's all for charity and, and we really have a good time. All right. So, Michael, um, we understand Rogue is a charity league. Can you explain how that works and how the money makes it from you to the charities? Absolutely. So um, each different team in our league uh, decides on what charity they want to support. Um, of course, there's a lot of teams in the league that uh, choose LGBTQ charities, um, both in town and across the country that they're going to support. So um, everything from uh, local organizations like Casa Ruby to big organizations like HRC, um, and not just LGBTQ, but uh, we have a lot of love for animals, things like City Dog Rescue or Homer Trails Alliance, um, and a lot of different uh, human rights organizations too. Uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders comes to mind. So as teams play throughout the season, um, they get uh, ranked within their own divisions. Um, and then we have a big playoff at the end. So if you win your division or if you win the playoff, you win some money for your charity. You see, that's really cool because I know uh, both Laura and I also play darts. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a good opportunity to win some money for your charity. Um, can you talk about how much money has been donated so far and how many years the league has been going? Um, so, uh, I believe that the league, so the league has been around for a number of years, uh, I believe since 2012, uh, and we've donated over $60,000 to various charities. Well, that is a good accomplishment, um, to say the least. And Gabe mentioned Gabe, both Gabe and I have participated in, um, rogue darts and in Tuesday night flights. And I know we've, um, our team has been lucky enough to give some money to Smile and some money to um, the Humane Society. So it really is a very cool organization and a very cool way to do some good while you're having a lot of fun. 
Um, do you want to speak, Michael, a little bit about um, how big the teams are and um, how many people kind of play week to week? Definitely. So each team in the league has six people on it uh, for Tuesday night flights uh, that goes down to four. So it's a little bit more nimble play. And uh, you can play as many as all six players on your team or as few as two. Um, so it's really, you know, it makes it nice and flexible. So whoever shows up uh, has the ability to play. Uh, but you get a lot of good chance to interact with, with other team members and get to know a lot of people around the league. Uh, Michael, how did you get involved in darts? Were you a darter before or is this all kind of new too? I was totally not a darter before. Uh, and I'm not especially sporty. Um, you know, I, I think uh, track and field is is uh, my chosen sport, but uh, it's a little hard to do that uh, socially. So when I got to DC, uh, we were looking for, my partner and I were looking for uh, something that we could play together, uh, but also, you know, get, get a bunch of our friends uh, and just have a good time. And darts was perfect. What I really like about it is that it is, an incredibly social sport. Uh, you know, anytime that you're not up there throwing or uh, when your team isn't playing, uh, you get the chance to just interact with everyone else in the league. Um, and it's one of those things that, you know, has really carried us. Uh, we've been playing since 2014. So um, every year you get to meet a new group of people and uh, it's, you know, you get a little bit better every year, but uh, it's always more about the people that you're getting to play against. All right. So let's say you're a brand new person to DC or a brand new person to darts. Um, how do you play or what exactly do you do? So darts is great because it's one of those games that you can jump right into. The rules are not complicated. And generally, as uh, one or two spots open up in a team, you have a built-in group of people to, to play with, some of whom have been playing for a while and, and can really get you up to speed. Or you can start a whole new team by yourself and, uh, you know, bring in five of your friends and just learn the game as you play. The game that we play is cricket. Uh, so you're trying to hit uh, any of the numbers from uh, 15 up to 20 three times uh, and then hit the bullseye three times. So it's an easy game to, to get the hang of, uh, but a hard game to uh, get really good at. <laughs> Michael, um, I know a lot of people have asked me because they're afraid if they have to do math and darts. Do you find you have to do a lot of math? Oh my gosh, that is where apps have absolutely saved us. So of course, there's an app that does all the scoring for you. Um, so they they do it all yourself. Uh, That's good news. I think you probably can, you scare people away if you tell them you have to do math for sure. Um, so with my darts team, I think we're a little bit of darts team and a little bit of drinking team. Do you find that drinking helps you play darts or, or are you a uh, teetotaler during darts? Definitely played against some teetotaler teams, but I can't say that they're any better than the teams that just get out there and uh, support <laughs> the bars that we are playing at. Um, so we are definitely not a teetotaler team, but we find that there's a bell curve to how good you are. So you can start with, you know, a beer or two. By about the third beer, you're probably hitting pretty well. But any more than that, and uh, the wall gets the beating. Oh, you close up the wall. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's still padded. So, you know, there's, <laughs> there's no damage, really. But... <laughs> 
I mean, I do have a friend who says that he'll only play sports where you can have a beer in one hand and play the actual sport. So darts is definitely up his alley. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, darts is one of those perfect games because it was essentially popularized in bars. So all the games have pretty much adapted to you being able to play uh, while you're at a bar. I mean, you really have to go from only have to go from 15 to 20. So it's, it's not complex math that we're working on. That seems as good a time as any to me to plug the bars that sponsor the league and where you guys play. Can you tell everybody about that? Absolutely. So uh, our regular league is played at Nelly's. Nelly's has been a fantastic sponsor of the darts league uh, for a number of years now. And we actually take up most of the bar when we're playing Uh, The entire top floor and then half of the bottom floor um, is all for uh, the league play. Uh, We set up uh, eight different boards around the place. um, And so you can come and practice, you can play, um, and you have uh, friendly bartenders that are always there ready and waiting for you. And how about Tuesday Night Flights? Tuesday Night Flights is over at Pitcher's. Uh, so it's a great place uh, with a lot of boards and great bars. All right, so we were kind of talking about it a little before, but one of the best parts of being on a team is coming up with your team name. So what are some of your favorites, and how did you come out with, uh, come up with your name? So um, I'm also a member of the Cornhole League. So we decided just for ease, we would find a name that worked well for both. So we are Throws Before Bros. Uh, so, you know, both, both with darts and cornhole, you're, you're set right there. Um, gosh, there are so many, uh, great names out there. Um, Groove is in the dart was definitely a favorite. Um, dart Vaders has been really good. And, you know, back in the days that Game of Thrones was popular, the Flight's Watch, uh, was right up there and everyone was envious that they came out with it. Um, we're going to see what the next, like great sensation is in team names i mean i think still one of my favorite is still is uh coal miners darter yes and then ours was supposed to be uh my tips don't lie so watch out for the next season tips don't lie will be out there i really like that so you know we have had to um we've never censored a name but we've always been um curious about some of the choices behind some of the the more um explicit names that have come out so you know every once in a while we kind of circle back to a team and and ask them about uh, how they've how they've chosen a name uh and sometimes they they decide to come up with one that's going to look better on a check going out to charity I, I can imagine that that can uh, come into a problem. I've always liked sort of the there's a couple golden girls themed names those ones are pretty good too but but yeah, I, I think that overall the league is pretty creative and I enjoy the uh, the just making up the team name can be one of the funnest parts of the season. Um, Michael, um, if we could talk for a couple minutes, you know, we Team DC, obviously Rogue is a member club of Team DC, but Team DC is an umbrella organization, um, centers its mission around inclusivity and promotion of sports participation in the LGBT community. Can you share any thoughts um, on why inclusivity is important to you personally um, or to Rogue as an organization? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think with um, sports in general, uh, a lot of LGBTQ people have felt like they haven't had as much of a connection 
to sports. Uh, maybe that's because of uh, experiences that they had when they were growing up or uh, because of the way that, that sports culture has in some ways, you know, marginalized LGBTQ people. Um, but I really feel like these intramural sports leagues uh, give people a chance to take back sports that they love um, and to find new sports that they can grow to love. Um, inclusivity is, is really one of the, the hallmarks of not only all the rogue sports, um, but clearly everything that, that Team DC does. And you see both in, you know, the, the sports, the wide variety of sports that they have. And then, you know, as you look around those clubhouses, um, you see just um, everyone coming together in a really uh, competitive way, but, but in a way that, that's, that's bringing people together. And one of the things that really stands out about the sports that we do is that it's, it's for a good cause. One of the cool things that I noticed uh, this past season um, was the partnership that Rogue Darts had with Mary Center. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that came about? Absolutely. So Mary Center has been just a, a, a big supporter of um, Rogue Darts. Uh, they would come every week and do testing for STDs and uh, yeah, including um, HIV uh, there at um, Nelly's. So um, they've been able to provide that as a, as a service um, and uh, have really uh, gone out of their way to make sure that, that that's something that um, team members have um, available to them, both right there at the games and as a, a resource in the community uh, for you know them, their, their partners, and their families. So we know Darts is a pretty social um, league. Can you talk about the other events that go that happen throughout the year? Um, yeah, definitely. So, you know, uh, we always have an opening event. Uh, so it's just a, a social time for teams to get together, meet each other. You know, since you're in divisions, you can get to know some of the other folks in your division. Uh, we always try to, you know, get our T-shirts out um, to the different teams then, maybe with a little bit of swag. Um, and then throughout um, each of the seasons, whenever we can, we try to find some other social event that we can put together. Um, usually something that highlights some of our charities, but all, you know, always something that it gives people a chance to, to socialize, raise some money and bring, you know, different teams, different divisions together. So, um, we've done that just as, um, social events over at, uh, some of our host bars, um, either pitchers or Nellie's, uh, but we've also done pup crawls, um, that always end up at, at, at one of our host bars. Um, so you get a chance to, to see the neighborhood. The neighborhood gets a chance to, you know, see some of the things that the, the teams are doing, meet, and, uh, you know, we get a lot of good drinks. That sounds terrific. I'm sure everybody enjoys having an extra day of drinking during the season. Um, so as the representative of the Darts League, I, I wanted to play a little uh, game with you. I pulled up a couple of um, Darts slang terms off the internet and i was i want to see if you can guess what any of them mean are you uh are you game to play along oh nice yes absolutely <laughs> all right gabe which one should we ask him first uh what do you think a bag of nuts is a bag of nuts um that is clearly when you're drink is empty and the ice is just rattling around in your glass <laughs> That is a fantastic Close. answer. 
Unfortunately, the answer is scoring 45 points in a round, and I can't at all guess why that is. That that was definitely my second guess. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Can you guess what a diaper dart is? Uh, Diaper dart. I would say that that is when it hits um, outside of the cork entirely and just goes right into the soft cushion around it. (laughs) That's a pretty good guess. According to the internet, a diaper dart is when your dart misses what it was aimed at, but accidentally scores well on another target. And that happens to me every turn, so I'm going to keep that in mind for next season. I thought that was just called playing the game. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, I mean, who knows who makes up these slang terms? Probably people that are really good at darts. I don't know. I wonder what the term is. I had a, uh, one of my old team members used to hit ketchup bottles at Nelly's. That's got to be mean something. <laughs> just miss the, miss the board altogether and hit a ketchup bottle? I don't know. All right, how about a bed and breakfast? Can you guess, Michael, what a bed and breakfast means? Uh, I'm I'm guessing that that is when you get two darts um, in the same wedge, just really close to each other. They're absolutely having a weekend out together. Oh, that's, I, 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 that's pretty close. So according to the internet, a bed and breakfast is when you score 26 points in a round by hitting a single 20, a single five, and a single one. So it's the basic idea. It's I have never scored that much at a bed and breakfast. So. <laughs> All right. That's fair. Although, you know, the five and the one, they are on either side of the 20. So I think you were go- getting along the right lines with your guess. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, clearly I need to make up my own slang dictionary for darts. Oh, absolutely. Now I know that the uh, centermost hole in a bullseye is a Hummer spot. Oh, right. How did I forget the Hummer spot? I feel like that's going to be the name of our next uh, social event for Rogue Darts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you heard it first. All right. That is terrific news for everybody who plays darts. Um, Michael, we have to sign off, unfortunately, but before we let you go, do you want to let everybody know where they can find more information about Rogue Darts if they want to come out and play? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, we'll be playing, um, again soon, uh, I'm sure, uh, either on Tuesdays at Pitchers or on Thursdays at Nelly's, and you can find out more about the league, uh, and how to sign up and register. Um, at rlsports.org slash darts. Great. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today. I had fun chatting and hopefully we can do it again soon. This was great. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston, a Team DC board member, for the design of our logo. Also, our intro and outro music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and our podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend so that we can all keep meeting Under the Bleachers.
Out of the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer and Team DC Board Member for Fundraising Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts and the participants on Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.